0: disclaimer. Any supposed facts or observations contained therein are attributed to the speaker and do not necessarily imply the endorsement of the podcasters or their affiliates. Does that sound right? I didn't sound like I said it right. Oh well, let's run with it. Cut. Cut. Hello, out there in Radioland, and welcome to One Track Mind Spooky Edition, the only commentary podcast that matters because, as far as I know, it's the only one. My name is Ryan Luis Rodriguez, born again cinephile, and your host for this series, where every week we're going to analyze film through the prism of audio commentaries. Directors, writers, actors, and craftspeople. Analyzing their own films in front of a microphone set the stage for the current culture, and it's about damn time somebody showed the proper appreciation. If that sounds too stuffy, I promise there will be jokes. This week is a little morsel in honor of the Halloween season. We're tackling my pick for the scariest movie ever made, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the DVD commentary featuring director Toby Hooper, cinematographer Daniel Pearl, and Leatherface himself, Gunnar Hansen. But first, some background. We began in the early 1970s with Toby Hooper, or to quote Chainsaw from summer school, Tobey Hooper, who upon graduating from the University of Texas at Austin, worked as an assistant director at the university and a documentary cameraman. Hooper had relatives in Wisconsin who would frequently tell him stories about a local man named Ed Gein, a murderer and grave robber who decorated his home with personalized eccentric items like lampshades made of human skin. Hooper never knew Gein's name, just his legendary exploits. While working on his feature directorial debut in 1969 called Eggshells, Hooper is introduced to writer Kim Hankel by a mutual friend. After Henkel appears in Eggshells as an actor, the two decide to collaborate on a horror screenplay. Inspired by the crimes of murderers like Gein and Elmer Wayne Henley, they come up with a story about a young brother and sister, Sally and Franklin Hardesty, headed for their family homestead in their native Texas with their friends. Upon reaching their destination, they come across a nearby, seemingly derelict home, populated by sadistic cannibalistic families and are stalked and killed by a giant mentally regressed man in a mask made of human skin. Only Sally manages to escape, and just barely, forever changed by the overwhelming ordeal she experienced. The best horror films are generally reflections of the time in which they're made, and there were few times in modern history more tumultuous than the end of the 60s, and the early 1970s. As the Vietnam War raged on, graphic footage of which was regularly broadcast on the nightly news, and the Watergate scandal and gasoline shortage plagued the country, Hooper and Hankel aimed to make a film about the real horrors of modern society, average Americans committing unspeakable acts. Their production cobbled together a paltry sum of $60,000, and over the course of little more than a month, the scrappy ragtag crew shot seven days a week, often 16-hour days, in the blisteringly hot, inhospitable Texas sun, a down-and-dirty production that would test the resolve of everyone involved and result in a horror masterpiece, the Texas Chainsaw. Two words, chain Saw massacre.
1: What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. Sally, I hear something.
0: Stop.
1: Stop. This is the movie
0: the cheeky working title for Hankel and Hooper's screenplay was originally Head Cheese, although when it began physical production, it was changed to Leatherface, and during editing, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Leatherface actor Gunnar Hansen felt disappointed by the final title, as he imagined himself to be the titular character of the film when he signed on, but that's just one of the many. Often legitimate complaints that Hansen had about the production. If there's a narrative at play in the audio commentary that we're discussing today, it's Gunnar Hansen airing grievances nonstop, like the commentary was recorded in the midst of the festivist season. I could practically rename this episode Gunnar Hansen Has a Grudge. Hansen looms large over the entire track, much like how Leatherface looms over the entire film even if he doesn't appear until around the 25-minute mark. Leatherface as a character was as much a collaboration as anything else in the film. Hansen spent several days shadowing patients at an institute for the mentally disabled in order to bring gravity and an inner life to a character who, on the page, just cuts people in two and wears a flesh mask. Together, Hooper and Hansen decided that the character lacked the capacity for speech— having mentally regressed to a child's mentality, acting out with temper tantrums infused with a sense of brute force. It's unclear exactly what the character would have been like without Hanson playing him, and to hear Toby Hooper tell the tale, he cast by appearances.
1: And then my tryout consisted of you said to me, are you violent? And I said no. And you said, well, are you crazy? And I said no. And you got this real worried look on your face, so you said... Can you do it? And I said, oh, sure, that's easy. And he said, okay, you got the part. <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later when we were having this, the contract signing party where everybody was signing off, and as soon as I signed the contract and you pulled it to your chest, you said, you know, the minute you walked in and filled the door, <laughs> exactly. I knew I wanted you. <laughs> I told you that. That's good. So I don't yeah. have to tell you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you had the part <laughs> before you came through the door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I kept thinking, well, so much for talent. <laughs>
0: Hansen probably had it harder than anyone else in the film, save for lead actress Marilyn Burns, running around in a smelly rubber mask, restricting his peripheral vision in the sweltering Texas sun, wielding a live power tool, a practice that sounds practically unbearable and certainly hazardous. Luckily, the crew had a most miraculous remedy.
1: During the late late in the shooting, when we were all out of our heads. And it was 110 degrees or whatever it was. I was standing outside, completely uh, unable to think, in the sun. And he called somebody over made them take my my mask off, led me to his white Buick Riviera, opened the trunk where it was filled with uh, ice and Lone Star beer. (laughs) He gave me two Lone Stars, put me in the passenger seat, turned the air conditioner on, and took me for a drive.
0: One of the film's most unknowable histories is the identity of Leatherface. Throughout the film, the character never removes his mask on camera, and it turns out that Hooper never actually shot any footage of the character unmasked. The closest approximation being a scene of the character touching up on the makeup on one of his masks. You see, Leatherface has multiple masks. It's never directly referenced on screen, but the mask Leatherface wears during the last third of the film is smeared with lipstick, and has poofier hair, and that's because...
1: You you told me that the whole idea is that the mask is because he really has nothing inside. I mean, the mask is the personality, so he changes faces depending on what he's trying to do. Now he's being domestic, he's been making dinner, and so he's got the old lady mask on, uh, I got an apron and a giant wooden spoon.
0: At the time of Texas Chainsaw's production, the Motion Picture Association of America had only four possible ratings to assign films. G, for general audiences. PG, parental guidance suggested. R, restricted, meaning the ticket buyer must be at least 17. And X, no one under 17 admitted. Believing that an R rating would hinder the film's commercial prospects, which were already limited considering the grittiness of the story, Hooper would downplay the graphic carnage that the title implied by leaving most of the violence off-camera or to the imagination.
1: I wanted to get a PG, you know, and and at least this this was the the dialogue with the MPAA. So we agreed that, uh, kind of in theory, that we... um, we may get a PG if there is no blood shown. And it, of course it depend on it, how effective the film was. But uh, so there isn't, there isn't really that much blood in this film. I mean, people have images of this film and immediately they, they say blood. But as you watch the film, notice I think there's probably about two ounces.
0: Most of the blood produced for the film, and it was a decent amount, was spackled on the walls of the set or used sparingly resulting in a movie that feels more viscerally upsetting than it actually was. Gunnar Hansen states in the commentary that he would regularly engage in discourse with rabid fans, many of whom attested to the film's graphic nature, which says a lot about the sense of atmosphere in the film, that it creates a Mandela effect of, of sorts on the audience's subconscious. Although you don't see explicit shots of women being skewered by meat hooks, or the guts of a paraplegic being skewered by a chainsaw, the film has the unrelenting, inescapable properties of a nightmare. Because you just want to see Sally escape her dread-infused ordeal in one piece, your mind invents a more grisly scenario than what it actually sees. I've often felt that leaving violence to the imagination is dishonest. By not seeing the immediate effects of terrible deeds, cinematic violence runs the risk of not adequately communicating the consequences of such things. Swing the pendulum too hard in the other direction, it becomes exploitative and distasteful. Texas Chainsaw is one of the rare cases of justifying its lack of graphic carnage, simply because the dread infused in the film speaks volumes. If the violence was any more graphic, it might become unbearable to watch. As is the occasional specks of blood and judicious editing around pierced flesh hit just the right balance between suggestive and excessive. The most horrific things in the film hinge on the audience's empathy for the character of Sally, whose captive presence at the cannibal family's dinnertime ritual is one of the hardest sequences to watch without squirming out of one's seat. Because of the unique set of circumstances involving the actor playing grandpa having a hard out, meaning they needed to wrap shooting by a certain time, the dinner sequence was shot over a marathon, 27-hour straight shoot. The combination of slow film stock requiring excess light over four times as much as the average digital camera today, a poorly ventilated set, Head cheese and taxidermied animal carcasses littered around the set and the blazing Texas heat made the scene as unbearable to photograph as it was to watch. Gunnar Hansen, in particular, eventually succumbed to the mania.
1: This scene, there's a there's a tube, there's a bulb in my palm on the, on, with a knife and, a, and, a, and there's a, a, there's a tube to feed the blood there, the fake blood. We shot this over and over again because the tube kept clogging. Uh, And and there's a piece of tape, scotch tape, over the blade edge to keep it dull. And we couldn't get the blood out of the tube onto the knife edge. And so after the fourth or fifth take, while they're all sort of getting ready to shoot it, I turned away from everybody and stripped the tape off the knife and and the tube, the blood tube, and then actually just cut her. And uh, and the reason was, at this point, we were insane. And now we're we're 18 hours into this 27-hour day.
0: The film was a tremendous success at the box office, especially considering its tiny budget, grossing more than $30 million in October of 1974, a haul that made it one of the most profitable independent films of all time, and the 12th highest grosser of the year. The critical reaction was more polarized, as some criticized the film for having excessive violence, which it did not have, and decried it as pornographic in nature, likely a reaction to the sensationalist advertising campaign that was more salacious than the actual film. I apologize for losing my voice in saying that. That said, even the harshest critics had to concede that the film was effective in what it set out to do, even if they probably couldn't describe it properly. This is best exemplified by Roger Ebert's two-star review, which he described it as, quote, better than the genre deserves, unquote. Somebody's a snob. Industry reactions were much more favorable, especially from filmmakers, with both Wes Craven and Ridley Scott acknowledging the film as an inspiration for The Hills Have Eyes and Alien, respectively. Today, it's regarded as one of the finest horror films ever made, a distinction it has more than earned. Toby Hooper has maintained that the brand of black comedy exhibited in the film always seemed to pass by audiences completely undetected, so when he had the chance to revisit the property in a 1986 sequel for Canon Films, he made the film more openly funny, resulting in more of a comedy than a traditional horror film. But you'll have to wait until Ryan's recommendations for that tale. Which is a couple seconds from now. Ha ha! Like I just promised, before we wrap up for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. (music) This week's recommendations continue our theme of the work of Toby Hooper, genre legend, going in chronological order. Hooper's follow-up to Texas Chainsaw, marked as one of the many frustrating production experiences for the horror auteur, although it's one that I have tremendous esteem for, 1977's Eaten Alive. Ostensibly about a, about a man who operates a hotel in the swamps of East Texas and his beloved crocodile, to whom he feeds his temporary tenants, this is a full-blown, sweaty, southern-fried nightmare that manages to be completely atmospheric despite being shot almost entirely on a soundstage. Those limitations work completely in its favor, as the situation the film presents feels genuinely inescapable. There really is no way or nowhere to hide, and by making the entire film so compact and hopeless, it's impossible to not feel terror for all the people who become gator food, or crocodile food, whichever you prefer. It's the natural progression from something like Texas Chainsaw, which is gritty and tactile, into something that takes on an almost operatic quality. Or it doesn't. I could be using that word incorrectly. After a fraught shooting schedule, Hooper was dismissed by the film's producers before it even finished shooting, and that should result in an unqualified mess. But while the film is indeed messy, it's messy in the right ways. And if I hadn't had more than one nightmare about Eton Alive, I'd probably watch it again soon. But don't hold your breath on that one. Speaking of fraught productions, or rather post-productions, the next recommendation is indeed a Toby Hooper joint, despite what you may have heard, 1982's Poltergeist. With a story and co-screenwriting credit from director Steven Spielberg, and being released literally a week before E.T. the Extraterrestrial came and wiped the floor clean with all of the competition, it's been suggested that Spielberg is in fact the man responsible for this film. Let's put aside the fact that he was shooting E.T. and couldn't have possibly been in two places at exactly the same time. There's very little in this film that I recognize as the Spielberg touch. It's a surprisingly nasty film that manages to amp up the terror of Texas Chainsaw into an allegory for the rot and decay at the center of suburbia, a patch of land stolen from its rightful owners. It is very much a companion piece with E.T., one romanticizing the suburbia of Spielberg's dreams, the other a dark fantasia into the heart of terror, but let's please let the directorial authorship rumors end there. Or not. It's entirely up to you, and honestly, I don't care anymore. For more on this little story, check out our Patreon page. And finally... The last recommendation this week indeed concerns the original Texas Chainsaw because it is indeed a sequel, 1986's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Very inventive title. As I addressed earlier, Hooper was frequently miffed that the audience for the original Texas Chainsaw didn't notice the undercurrent of black comedy in his film. So for the follow-up, he dialed down on that comedy. He made a movie that, at times, plays like self-parody, even if it's all intentional. The stark pseudo-realism of the original is jettisoned for a grand guignol palette, the cannibal family now on a statewide scale, and in that sense, it stands as a terrible sequel. There is really no comparing the two movies, they're apples and oranges, but they definitely, definitely don't exist in the same universe. The production is much more elaborate and painted with a broad brush, with Tom Savini contributing makeup and gore effects like a revised leather face mask that I frankly do not care for. But while Texas Chainsaw 2 is a terrible sequel, it stands as a very good movie. And unlike Steven Spielberg and E.T. and Poltergeist, you can be both at the same time. It's a movie so essentially interesting that it might warrant another One Track Mind episode, so stay tuned until next Halloween when I probably won't select it. But even knowing that, surprises will tend to happen with this show. Eaten Alive is currently available on Blu-ray from Arrow Video. Poltergeist recently released a 4K disc from Warner Home Entertainment, and a tremendous deluxe edition of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is on Blu-ray, courtesy of the good folks at Scream Factory. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterboxd page at letterboxd.com one-track-mind. That'll do it for this week. Is there anything that I overlooked? Reach out to me at OneTrackMindPod on Twitter, one, that's the numeral one, Track Mind podcast on Instagram, on Podchaser, or send me an email at OneTrackMindPodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in getting even more content from this show, please consider joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash OneTrackMind, where you can get every episode early and exclusive bi-weekly bonus content featuring the films of directors who never picked up a microphone and blabbed about their own movies. This time, it's Steven Spielberg. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for the podcast artwork, Bill Sherm for all our original themes, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Catherine H., Ellen I., Kathleen D., Izzy T., Bobby L., Michael A., Ian C., Ian M., Kitty K., Kelly B., The Vern, Mary M., Jenny R., Bill M., Christopher H., Tracy R., and Christopher J. Thanks for listening, and until next time, you're going to cut that, right? Dawn, that's the end.